Welcome to Cisco Tech Beat, the podcast that explores the people and stories behind what inspires the newest innovation. I'm your host, AB, and today I'm excited to welcome Brian Tippins, Senior Vice President and Chief Social Impact Officer at Cisco. Brian oversees leadership of our inclusive future work, and he has an incredible track record as a leader committed to social justice and broad advocacy on some of the most critical issues facing our communities. Brian, it is a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you for the welcome and for that kind introduction. I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Looking forward to the discussion today. So am I. So am I. And so let's just dive right into it awesome. because this is the beginning of your Cisco journey. I'm, I'm really happy that I'm actually getting to talk to you at the start of your being a Ciscoian. You have such an important role, one that touches on several initiatives from social justice to advocacy to accessibility. What attracted you to Cisco and what are your early thoughts about Cisco's social impact office? So early is the right word. It's only been, I think, 75-ish days here with the company. <laughs> I'm, I'm still within my first 90 days. It feels like I just started. It's kind of overwhelming. There's so much to learn in terms mm -hmm. of the people and the content. But I'd say, you know, I, I joined the company. I've been in the tech industry for about 30 years. I'd spent 22 years with Hewlett-Packard, Hewlett-Packard Enterprise, a few years with Intel Corporation before that. So some some big brands and some big roles around purpose. Right. But attracting me to Cisco, I'd say, is a few things. So this one, certainly the, the brand, the maturity of the brand, a Silicon Valley mainstay have always admired the company from a sort of technological leadership standpoint. Uh -huh. I'd say second is the people. Everyone with whom I spoke when I was considering coming over was just so incredibly nice. And, and in a genuine way, you know, usually <laughs> if you're interviewing for a role, everybody's going to be nice and put their interview face on, of right? Course. But everyone with whom I interface was just genuinely nice, which attracted me from a cultural standpoint. I think the most important thing is this concept of purpose, right? Many companies talk about purpose. You've got kind of the words on the slide or the kind of the artifacts in the lobby of the building that talk about how we're committed to purpose or inclusion or sustainability, whatever those things are. Cisco really means it, right? And they've, they've built an organizational construct around purpose, tied purpose to the business strategy in a way that's really meaningful. And I saw that even as an outsider coming in. And so that to me was very attractive. I wanted to kind of bring my experiences to a company that had already made great progress around driving purpose. Now, there, there's still work to be done in that regard, but right. clearly the company has laid such a wonderful foundation and done such great work there. And so it's actually a, a dream job for me to be able to be here. Awesome. I love that. I love that answer. And I, I can definitely uh, relate to the idea of people being friendly because it is genuine. I got the same feeling when I started here. So so I'm, I'm happy that you feel that way, too. We are in February, which is Black History Month, and we proudly celebrate that here at Cisco. Our theme this year is Black Resistance. What does Black Resistance mean to you, Brian? And what can we and our allies do to continue to dismantle the barriers that still exist today? So I'll say uh, I love February. I love Black History Month every year. You know, it's not just in February that we celebrate the accomplishments of the African-American culture and the community and think about where we've been, the richness of our past, what's going on currently, but looking forward to the future. It's always a very good time to reflect and I enjoy the festivities and the activities like the ones we're doing here at, at right. Cisco this month, which are great. I'd say the theme this year is a really important one and, and one that, that it it kind of warrants some explaining. When we think about resistance, we think about kind of the history of Black resistance and having to engage in whether it's the boycotts or the marches or the sit-ins to drive positive social change. We right. think about the massive marching across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama. You think about the Montgomery bus boycott. You think about Rosa Parks refusing to give up her seat, right? It's a history of needing to engage in these resistance activities 
for our culture, but also for the, the allies and supporters in order to drive change. And, and those were in many ways very successful in driving positive social change. But the work is not done. I think this theme of Black resistance this year acknowledges the fact that there's work for all of us to do, those in the African-American community and those allies outside the community to resist forms of unconscious bias in the workplace, to resist disparities in education and healthcare, right? Yeah. It's recognizing the fact that we still have work to do and, and that we, we've pivoted from the sit-ins and the boycotts and the marches and the op-eds to positive, constructive change that we all engage in. And so I think this theme of resistance is recognition of the fact that we're all in this together. We're all doing positive things to drive that change, including the work that we do every day inside of Cisco. Absolutely. And I love that you reference work and, and Cisco and just companies in general, because cultivating and maintaining a diverse workforce is something that's really a challenge for all companies, but especially companies in tech. Could you talk a little bit about Cisco's approach to addressing issues of diversity in the workforce? Sure. Yeah. And I think that was an astute observation that it's particularly difficult in tech, right? We all struggle, all industries struggle with getting the right level of representation, not just in terms of African-American representation, but Hispanic, around Asian, around other underrepresented minorities, around women in senior leadership roles. But it's particularly pervasive in the tech industry and, and, and has been for some time, but certainly the light has been shown on that over the last several years. I think we've spoken more about it in the last five or six years than we had before that. And it's good to see that there's so many deliberate efforts across the tech industry to drive that positive change through things like how we hire, how we develop internally to drive representation at all levels. I think Cisco is a standout in this way in that, one, it's not new to us by any means that the company had been focused on diversity and inclusion long before this latest round of the, the increased scrutiny, right? And so it's got right. a rich foundation on which to build, which is great. I think uh, another thing that Cisco's credit is that in addition to that history, we take a very kind of comprehensive view across the enterprise. It's not just going out and trying to meet some goals of hiring. It's focusing on once we've got a diverse workforce in place, what are we doing to make sure we've got representation at all levels, including at the most senior levels and into our board of directors, right? <laughs> but how we're creating an environment of inclusion, how we're focusing not just on our workforce, but on our supplier spend on building a diverse partner ecosystem, right? And I think that's one of the things that stands up to me about Cisco's ecosystem. I, I'm happy that here in February, we're welcoming a brand new chief diversity, equity, and inclusion officer, Gloria Goins, who's just started with the company. She's got her work cut out for her, but building on a massive, great foundation of, of, of great work in the space. Absolutely. And I mean, the company culture is so important with, with issues like this. So it, it is also comforting to me to know that Cisco has diversity and equity and inclusion as a top priority across the board, from the boardroom and beyond. <laughs> yeah. And I think another thing that's unique about us is that we extend this beyond the four walls of, of Cisco. So as I mentioned, we'd long had a focus on diversity, equity, inclusion. This is not new to us by any means. Right. We had very senior leaders who looked after the space. And, and from our CEO, Chuck, on down, we all of our leaders are very serious about the space. But Cisco did something that's been unique um, in the uh, around the 2020 timeframe in the wake of the tragic murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, of Ahmaud Arbery, this kind of racial reckoning of 2020. The company kind of took its efforts further and made a significant investment in saying, what else can we do to take a very comprehensive approach that looks not only within the four walls of the company, but into the communities where we live and work, and came up with an action office, a social justice action office that operates very much like a business with the same level of rigor and consistency and senior leadership report out as the other parts of our business. We identified these 12 areas of focus and they extend everywhere from conventional notions of diversity in the workforce. How are we hiring a diverse workforce? Are we promoting at parity? We look at equal pay and things like that. But we also look into 
um, the communities where we live and work are deliberately working to build a partner network. You know, we at Cisco sell a lot of our products and services through external partners. We want to make sure that an adequate number of those are African-American-led partner organizations. We think about making investments through what we call our Aspire Fund yep. to African-American-led venture capital startups in the Silicon Valley, right? It's, it's very comprehensive. And in aggregate, the investment that we're making is about $300 million over five years. And, you know, usually we wouldn't talk about the, the dollars and cents behind it, but I think it's important to go to show how serious this is to us, that we treat this like a business priority and tie it to our business strategy. So I think that's one thing unique about the work that we do in Cisco when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion, but really also social justice. Absolutely. We're going to actually jump in a time machine for a second because I I want to go back a little bit. Back to your childhood. I know that you're originally from Oakland and when you were growing up, education was, of course, extremely important in your household. And I can relate to that being from the Caribbean. I read somewhere that at an early age, you developed a strong appreciation for giving back to your community. What are some of your earliest memories of giving back? Ah, that's a great question. That is a time machine question. You're really bringing me back. So, so, uh, so I grew up, yes, as you said, in Oakland, California, more specifically West Oakland, California, which at the time when I was growing up in the 70s and 1980s was kind of middle to lower middle class, working class, mostly African-American community. My parents had a value for education, so they sent us across town <laughs> to the other part of town to the Catholic <laughs> parochial schools where I was usually one of very few African-Americans. And it was great to be able to, to play in both worlds, right? And they certainly made sacrifices for us to be able to have that level of education. I think one of the earliest memories, because a part of Catholic education, of course, was giving back to communities. I remember in my third or fourth grade years, taking time away from classroom studies for us to walk in unison, in the line, in the class, about 30 or 40 of us, to what we called at that time old folks' homes, right? The convalescent homes, to go spend time with the elderly folks who were there, to bring them some joy, to do some arts and crafts. And so it was a small thing, but really gave us an appreciation for the fact that we all have a role to play in giving back. Giving back to you know, underserved communities, but giving back to those who um, you know didn't have the benefit of visits very frequently, right? So that, was, right. that was part of my, my early upbringing. But from my earliest days, just going from those different worlds, from the lower income communities of West Oakland to going to school across town, being able to see the disparities between lifestyles, homes, levels of education, access to healthcare, I was always keenly aware of that. And so it's always been a part of my identity, even to today wanting to be a force for good to be able to kind of uplift communities. Oh, of course. And, you know, Cisco has a very strong employee culture of giving back as well, which you probably are already aware of, even though you're new to the company. Have you learned about some of that? Are you involved in any of that? And what does that look like for you in your early days here at Cisco? Yeah, it's amazing. I I get to see it as an employee and be impressed by the level of engagement of our team members. Uh, Part of my organization plays a role in that. I mentioned these social justice actions that are primarily targeted towards African-American communities in the U.S. Those 12 actions, as I mentioned, they're well-funded, they're well-staffed, but a big portion of the staff are Cisco team members Ciscoians, I think we call them, yes. who, who volunteer. <laughs> they, they volunteer a portion of their time to contribute to these initiatives. For example, a big part of that investment is about $150 million investment in historically black colleges and universities right. to provide STEM education, to provide uh, technology enhancements inside the four walls of those HBCUs. And a big part of that work is done by Ciscoians who volunteer a portion of their time. They could be tech consultants by day and give some of their tech consulting time to these, these volunteer initiatives. But we you know, are proud of saying that greater than 80% of our team members report that they're engaged in in their communities, whether it's through volunteerism, mentoring, sponsorship. And it's a big part of our culture. It's good to see that it's not just lip service, right? It's something we take very seriously 
from the top on down. And, and that's really encouraging to me as a new team member coming in. Great. It's so funny when you said Siskonians, it reminded me, I, I remember when Fran interviewed Oprah and Oprah kept referring to us as Siskoans. And I, I really thought that Cisco would probably change it because Oprah said it. <laughs> but for anybody, you know, yeah, Oprah says oh, something, you kind of adopt it, right? <laughs> so, it, it, it becomes a thing. Yes, Oprah, if you say so. We're if you now say Siskoans. so, I will be a Siskoan. That's fine. No problem. Um, so let's fast forward just a little bit from your early childhood to college, to university. You went to the University of San Francisco and studied management information systems? Correct. And I remember reading somewhere that you, you were sure, you were 100% sure at the time that you would end up being a CIO or a CTO. But then the plan basically morphed. It, it changed into something else. What changed and how did that pivot lead you to the work you're doing today? Yes, yeah, another great question. I tell you from, uh, I talked about my parents and their value for education. Um, my late father was a programmer, as we called them, computer programmers. We didn't call them coders or developers back in those days. They were programs like ones and zeros, assembly language, right? And right. so early on in my upbringing, we had computers in the home. Even in the late 1970s, 1980s, before any of my peers had computers, we had, in fact, I still have, have one of my original computers somewhere around here to Radio Shack TRS eighty Model Three. I don't know if you're, you're too young to remember that. No, you know? no, I had a Tandy. Okay, so, good. So, so, which was Radio Shack? <laughs> exactly. So, I still have some of those very early computers. I think it had one k of memory, and you loaded programs from a cassette tape. And yep. but, but I, I digress. Let me, let me say <laughs> that we already had always had technology in the home, and I learned even as a, a teenager to code, it was basic programming. Then you learn Pascal, then you learn right. C. Our listeners probably don't remember all this, but but I was a technologist at an early age. And so I knew that my career was going to take me in the direction of technology. And it, at that time in the, the tech boom of the late nineties, when I was uh, in university, everyone wanted to be a CIO or a CTO. And, and so I thought that's where my career was going to take me. But I knew that in order to be more distinguished IT professional, I needed some more education beyond my undergrad degree. And I didn't like math, so I didn't want to go to business school. So I decided to go to law school. <laughs> so I went to law school, got my law degree, not intending to hang a shingle, not intending to practice law, but intending to be a more distinguished IT professional, CIO or CTO. Right. And indeed, I started working for Intel doing legal work. I left Intel in 2000 to go to HP doing the legal work. And so I was doing kind of technology law work, intellectual property licensing, deal negotiation, but I wasn't ticking the boxes on purpose. You know, we've talked about the fact that I, from an early age, was really invested in giving back to communities. And while I was enjoying that legal work, it wasn't the fun stuff that kind of filled my soul that I found enriching, right? <laughs> right. So even I was doing my legal work during the day, I would find every opportunity to volunteer in my community, you know, to put on the company branded polo shirt and go yep. do the Habitat for Humanity or go do this thing or that thing. And one of the programs for which I, I volunteered a lot while early on in my career with HP in the early 2000s was a program called our Supplier Diversity Program. It was around increasing our procurement spend with underrepresented businesses. And a big part of that was going to trade shows talking to minority business and women-owned business and veteran-owned businesses about how to do business with our company. Cisco has the same program today. And I found that incredibly rewarding. And that was my first career pivot where I said, yeah, this legal stuff is cool, but I really enjoy this other stuff. And so I left that legal role. In fact, I took a demotion voluntarily in order to get myself into a supplier diversity role, which helped me grow in my career. And I'm happy to say, B, that I've been in a position where my last several years of my career, I've been able to choose roles deliberately that were purpose-driven roles. It's just part of my identity. It's part of what I do. And it's been a, a, a great ride. 
That's a great story. I love that. I want to jump back to something you said when we were talking about Cisco social justice initiatives and how we hold not just ourselves accountable, but even our partners. Because, you know, as you mentioned, partners are so important for us in terms of the business model. Recently, we did launch something that is partner-related. It's an industry first, the Partnering for Purpose Initiative. What is the significance of that platform? How is it helping us achieve our goal of powering an inclusive future for all? Yeah, it's a great question. It's an awesome program, one that I'm very proud of, that was just launched officially at our, our partner summit. You know, we at Cisco do a big partner summit every year. We did one, in fact, it was my very first week with the company in the <laughs> no, November of last year in Las Vegas, where we brought many of our partners, thousands of our partner representatives to Vegas in person for the first time, I think, since covid and looking forward to doing that every year. We rely on our partners for our business success. It's a big part of how we sell and go to market, right? And right. so when we think about powering an inclusive future for all, that last word, all, is very important. It's around not just those who work for the company, not just philanthropic efforts where we you know, operate around the globe, but around driving business community as well. We're not done with this. We're on a journey. We've done some things that we can be proud of, but we're, we're constantly working to do better. But we're certainly in a position where we could share what we've learned with our partners and our suppliers and other communities. And so Partnering for Purpose creates a mechanism for us to be able to do that, to provide tools and resources of a very robust portal for our partners to come in and learn from what we've learned. Things like how to stand up a diversity inclusion program or provide unconscious bias training, how to think about your approach to environmental sustainability, extending these multiple areas of purpose and the lessons that we've learned to our thousands of partners across the globe, tens of thousands of partners, so that they can build programs of their own. Right. Recognizing that they're all at different levels of scale and capability. Some of our partners certainly have their own rich, robust programs and have for a while, but others may be earlier in their journey. And so this gives them an opportunity to learn, but also an opportunity over time to share what's working for them, share best practices. And this is important because when we talk about all, again, it has to be all communities. And we're in this great position at Cisco to position the company at the forefront of driving purpose and at the forefront of this fight for social justice. And so Partnering for Purpose provides us an official organized mechanism to begin to do some of that work, which is really exciting. That's great. I want to piggyback on that a little bit more because obviously partnerships are important for so many reasons and creative partnerships are a big part of achieving some of these bold ambitions and goals that we have for the future. How do you see partnerships and ecosystems evolving to better support social impact and business agendas? Yeah, that, that's another great question. Super astute. I, I think we can't do what we need to do. We can't drive positive change in communities. We can't power an inclusive future for all without strategic partnerships across the globe. There's this concept that I talk about sometimes. I call it irresponsible philanthropy. Right? Right. <laughs> it's very easy for a company or a foundation with uh, rich coffers, with dollars to say, hey, we want to fight uh, social injustice and make investments in communities and write a check and walk away. And we'll never turn away money. That, that's fine. Communities need investment. Sure. But many times the companies don't know, the corporations don't know how best to use those dollars and just kind of fly in and then come back out again. And those investments, while, while, while great, generally are not sustainable because you don't have the insights that the partners with the feet on the ground have as to how best to, to, to drive that change. And so I think partners partnerships are critical, whether we're talking about community partnerships a big part of what we do is, for example, focusing on eradicating homelessness in the Silicon Valley. We work with strategic partners to be able to do that. 
We're focused very much through the Cisco Foundation on um, environmental sustainability and investing in causes that have unique solutions around water scarcity and other environmental factors, right? Those partners know better than we do how to drive positive change in those areas. We might not be the experts in those areas. And so those partnerships are critically important to, to driving that positive change with non-governmental organizations, NGOs, with local nonprofits, also with uh, academia, with the universities and the high schools and the governmental agencies across the globe. So as we think about our long-term strategy, those partnerships are critically important. As you were talking, I was thinking about something too, like this whole notion of purpose, whether it's internal or with partners or teaching others how to be purposeful. I find that people sometimes think that purpose and business are mutually exclusive. <laughs> like, you know, either you're a company that does really cool things for and great things around the world, or you're a company that makes money. But I think that purpose actually has business and business. Why does purpose matter to business, in your opinion? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think we, you know, my leader, Fran, says the business has to be good to give us the ability to drive change in the world. But you can also have things that are good for the world and good for business. I have frequently talked about kind of these three C's of purpose around compliance, around corporate social responsibility, but around competitive advantage. Compliance meaning that there's a lot of things we have to do around the globe that could fall under the heading of purpose because they're government mandated, whether it's minimum representation levels in our workforce or in California, there's regulation around the representation on our boards of directors, or we do business in many geographies around the world where there's environmental regulations, and we never want to run afoul of those regulations. So compliance drives some of what we do in the air of purpose. Beyond that, it's corporate social responsibility, making sure that we're enhancing the image and brand and that, for example, the diversity of our workforce represents the diversity of the communities where we do business. That's the, the right thing to do message. That's right. But the most important thing for me is the last, which is competitive advantage. We truly create competitive advantage if we get this right, whether it's because you know, we're always in a fight for the best and brightest talent. And the emerging talent coming out of the universities now, they, they, the young folks want to work for organizations that are purpose-driven because they've got a value for purpose. Or in the area of diversity and inclusion, our diverse workforce want to come to a company where they know their career aspirations can be met, which people look like them, right? So sure. I think purpose from that standpoint and the talent fight makes a big difference. Also in delighting our customers in the marketplace, many of our customers have a value for purpose and they want to know that they're doing business with companies like Cisco whose values align with theirs, right? right. It's the, all these different reasons why it creates for us a competitive advantage. So our purpose strategy is inextricably bound to our business strategy. Yeah, perfectly said. Thank you for that. Awesome. Now, typically when I get toward the end of a podcast, I ask people about you know hobbies and things that they do. But I actually want to ask you something that you and I talked about briefly before we started recording, which was, before you actually started your first day at Cisco, you took a sabbatical, which I think sounds very exciting. So what did you do? What did you decide to do? And how did that all transpire? So, yeah, I appreciate the question. That's a fun one. It was too brief, right? I had determined <laughs> that I was going to make a career transition and, and migrate away from my previous role. I wanted to take a little bit of time. I'm at an age where I'm thinking I'm closer to the end of my career than the beginning. I'm not ready to stop working, but I needed that that break, that mental break that sometimes we need in our careers as we're trying to figure out what's next. And so I, I did a lot of focus on wellness. I adopted the Mediterranean diet and lost some weight and start going to the gym every day. All that mm -hmm. wellness stuff right? oh, yeah. that was very important <laughs> to me. And I spent a lot of time reading and reflecting. But I tell you what I didn't do, what I, what I wanted to do, because Cisco made me this offer for this wonderful role. And so I ended up cutting my sabbatical shorter than I, I wanted to. But what I wanted to do, 
because I be when you take a sabbatical, you want to be able to tell the story later on that you did something really memorable. I sailed across <laughs> right. the globe or I climbed <laughs> Kilimanjaro or something like that. Right, right? Right. <laughs> and, 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 and that's not me, but, but, right. but I'm a, a sucker for good food and I love Broadway shows. And so I said, you know what I'm going to do for my sabbatical? I'm going to go. I didn't tell my wife this yet at the time. I'm sure she would have been on board. We're going <laughs> to, we're, we're, we're going to get an Airbnb in Manhattan and for at least 30 days. Um, and, and the rules would be, a show every day, a Broadway show every day, a different show every day. Oh yeah, and and we'll eat every meal out and never the same place twice because you could totally do that in Manhattan. Right? Oh, 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 so, oh yes, yes, right. Yeah. And, and I've seen some big shows. You know, we've been blessed and lucky to see like the Hamilton, the Lion King, sure. the big banner shows. But I've never seen the the lesser known and the off Broadways. And I have yeah. a feeling there's probably enough to keep you busy every single day for a month. So I didn't get to do that in this sabbatical, but hopefully in my next sabbatical in life, <laughs> I can do I can do something fun like that. Oh, absolutely. And by the way, if you ever come to the city, either solo or with your wife, and you need an additional two people to join you in Broadway shows, we would be happy to go. My wife's actually a former Broadway person, so she sort of knows a lot of people in the industry, but I, we love Broadway shows too, so I, we would be happy to meet you at a show in New York City if you make it out here the next time and you want to do that. I would love that. I will take you up on that offer. And I think it's the insiders like you who know the tricks and, and you have to do this matinee or you have to buy yeah. this, this, and this. So yes, I, right. I will I will definitely take you up on that offer. Thank you very much. You got it. Brian, I think it's actually a perfect place to bookend our show. This was a fantastic conversation. I'm, I'm really excited for our future conversations, hopefully in person. But I just want to thank you for doing the episode, giving us insight into your role and how excited you are about the work that you and your team are going to do. And I just want to thank you again for your time. I appreciate your time. I enjoy the conversation. Thank you for the opportunity to have a discussion so early on in my tenure, still just below that 90-day mark. I'm looking forward to <laughs> doing this again at the, let's do it at the year anniversary. Oh, perfect plan. Perfect plan. Well, thank you so much. And, and you have a great rest of your day. Thank you very much. <laughs>